Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 63. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life to School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how'd they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Sam Agus. Sam is a biology teacher at Denver East High School in Denver, Colorado. Sam currently teaches honors genetics and honors biology, but she has taught a wide variety of science courses throughout her career. Before teaching in Denver East, Sam taught in Bloomington, Indiana, and also in Chicago, Illinois. Sam has been working on the Inquiry Hub project or iHub project with Bill Penwell at Colorado University. The iHub project works to connect researchers, computer scientists, educators, and other stakeholders to implement learner-centered teaching that promotes adaptability and responsiveness to the different needs of diverse learners. Samantha has also been working to promote student research by attending the Research Teacher Conference in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Society for Science and the Public. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get you on. As we were talking before we started recording, um, I you know had asked a couple of people and our good common friend Paul Strode was like, oh, you got to get Sam on like immediately within like literally right off the top of his head, your name popped right up. So that's a, it's a pretty ringing endorsement, endorsement in my book. Well, I'm flattered. Paul is an amazing educator and um, just being around him, getting to interact with him, I feel like just improves my practice significantly. So thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, He's one of those guys who every time I walk away from a conversation with him, you know, we, we talk at a conference or if I've had him on the episode on a few different episodes, uh, usually before conferences, plus the long form. And um, yeah, I, I always leave, I think, with more questions that I'm reflecting on myself, <laughs> which I think is a kind of a good teacher. I don't know that Absolutely. he knows he's my teacher, <laughs> but he's really my teacher on how to be a teacher sometimes. And he's so great that he, I don't think necessarily intentionally does it. He's just so thoughtful that it inspires me and probably others to really reflect on our own practice and our own lens. So it's really powerful. Yeah, I was uh, I was looking at his his blog actually earlier today. I actually went to search for something. His his uh, his blog had come up, and uh, I w- was lamenting that he hasn't posted a lot more. Not that he isn't writing and creating and doing all these other things, but it was like, oh man, I wish he would put more stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> right, his his website is very robust in terms of just the materials that are available. Whether you're at his blog, or I know that he also has a web page for his research site science courses um, that Mm. he teaches. So I've, needless to say, I've downloaded everything that I possibly can from his website and have organized it and um, was lucky enough at the teacher's research conference uh, in Washington, D.C. to get to work with him quite a bit. So it was wonderful. I'll definitely have to put that on my to-do list. And um, I think my show notes are off to a very uh, strode-heavy start. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to definitely have to dive into some of those pieces. So, all right. So the, the Strode Love Fest has started, but uh, I think I'm going to change gears. And I'm going to start the question I like to ask everybody, which is, uh, how did you become a science teacher? Uh, like, what brought you into the classroom? 
Well, I had a very meandering path to becoming a teacher. Um, I went to, my undergrad is from the University of Wisconsin. Um, I did some undergraduate research there and I um, ended up um, earning a fellowship to Duke University and I worked on mm. a PhD that I did not complete. <laughs> um, it just wasn't for me. Um, doing all of the hands-on animal research, as you can imagine, is tough. Mm. Um, and so I had to reflect on whether research was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I came to the conclusion that it wasn't. And so after that, I decided that I needed to take some time and just work and figure out what I what my passion was. Uh, because for many years, that's what I thought I wanted to do was uh, scientific research, specifically mm -hmm. in the field of toxicology. So oh, after... Yeah. It, it was great. I had a wonderful experience and the people I worked with were fantastic. It was just, I had to figure out for myself what my passion was. So after that, I left, the, uh, I left Duke, moved to Chicago, and I worked actually in business development and sales for about five years selling different software. Um, at one point, I was selling software that helped companies and hospitals manage their safety training and material safety data sheets. Um, and there, there were a few other roles in Chicago. And after a few years, I really got to a point where um, it just, again, wasn't the right fit for me. I really wanted to do something where I could use my science background and that those roles were not the right fit in that regard. So mm -hmm. um, I decided that I wanted to do some tutoring uh, just to see how it would work out for me. So I actually had a friend from work who knew of um, a student that uh, would benefit from some just additional uh, science and math discussion and help. Uh, and so I started volunteering just um, fairly informally. It wasn't through an organization. It was just through a friend who knew this student um, just helping out. And I, I really enjoyed getting to know the student. I really enjoyed getting to work with him. And I decided after some reflection that I'm just I'm going to do it. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go back to school full time. Uh, the University of Illinois in Chicago has a wonderful master's program where you can be a full time student for a year, which includes both summer sessions, a fall and a spring session. And you can earn mm -hmm. your master's degree in science education. So I decided oh, wow. that I was going to I was going to, you know, dive right in. And uh, needless to say, I did go into some debt, but it was worth every penny because because I had the opportunity to work with um, two of this, the most amazing teachers. Actually, they would make great people to talk to on the podcast. <laughs> so we can talk about that later. Todd Katz and Anna Gallardo, G-A-L-L-A-R-D-O, from Whitney Young Magnet High School. Um, they're just both amazing master teachers. Um, and then following that, we decided, um, really just for financial reasons, honestly, we needed to live somewhere that was cheaper than Chicago. <laughs> so we moved to Bloomington, Indiana, where I was able to get a job as actually a chemistry teacher there. So I worked there. Um, previously in Chicago, I was doing biology. But in uh, Indiana, I taught chemistry for a few years and had the opportunity to work with uh, just some wonderful people. Um, I picked up mentors along the way. I think that that is <laughs> One of the, the biggest pieces for me is um, sort of adopting someone that you admire, someone that pushes themselves to be better, uh, that has their own lens, their own perspective, and just learning as much as you can from them. Um, and so that, I think, 
when I reflect on my previous experiences, and even now it, as a teacher at East, uh, that's really where I anchor my practices. How are more experienced teachers doing this? Uh, mm -hmm. Because they are an invaluable resource that I can take advantage of. Yeah. And when you're, you're starting to get now, you know, you're a few years into your career, you're going to actually start to turn that corner a little bit where people are going to start coming to you. Um. <laughs> That's exciting and scary at the same time. Because <laughs> yeah. I'd be lying if I said I had all the answers. I think that one thing that I really love about teaching is um, I, I genuinely love learning. Um, I just like learning anything and everything, um, almost any kind of topic. And with teaching, I genuinely feel like I learn something new every day, whether it's content, whether it's a strategy, whether it's just maybe this is a better way to interact with a student or interact with a coworker, whatever the case is, it's, uh, it's very process oriented. And every day I try to think, what did I get out of today? What can I take away from my experience? And there's always at least one thing. So. Yeah. I think if you come across a teacher who tells you that they know everything, I would turn and walk away. <laughs> Quietly, because um, <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in year, uh, what am I, 23 now? I'm in year 23. And, and I can't, um, like, I realize, every, I think I had a conversation this morning, you know, with, with my colleague, and I'm very blessed who I get to work with every day. I work with a fantastic other AP biology teacher. And, like, literally we had this conversation where I, I think I said, I was like, I think we had this wrong when we made this change and I was uncertain, but I think I'm not sure. Like it was, there was so much uncertainty in the change that I was talking about and we're, we're still tweaking with things and we're working with things and we're brainstorming and we're coming up with ideas. And, and I think there's a, a certain degree of humility that, um, and this is one of the things that I enjoy working with him about. He brings a certain degree of humility and a lack of certainty to changes that we make that, you know, he's honest about his unknowns. And I try to mirror that and be honest about my unknowns so that we're eyes wide open when we come into a decision and can understand like, all right, we think this is going to be the outcome from, you know, this curriculum decision, but we have to let the students tell us, you know, what's going to exactly. work and what's not going to work. Exactly. I, I completely agree. And um, having a certain level of flexibility is crucial um, because you have to respond to student needs, right? So mm -hmm. um, even when you think you have the greatest lesson, um, you've gotten feedback from other colleagues, um, it, you know, you can read the students pretty quickly <laughs> and it's easy to see whether they're engaged, whether, you know, this is something that is coherent, even for instance, in the storyline that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I completely agree. And I also think it's important um, to model that level of um, uncertainty, the ability to reflect on changes and, and make revisions. I think it's important to model that for students um, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, because that really does reflect the culture of science. And I also think that uh, hopefully it creates an atmosphere in the classroom that lets kids feel like they can make mistakes, right? Mm. Like it's okay to be wrong as long as we learn, right? And we move forward. And so one of the challenges I think that I'm working through as an educator is, you know, trying to create that atmosphere where students feel like they can take intellectual risks um, 
so yeah, I, I'm curious <laughs> to hear your thoughts on that when we get there. Yeah, yeah. We, I think there's a lot when it comes to research. There's a whole, uh, a whole section that we could get into, and I think I, I love to hear. We're going to get to I think a little bit um, some of your student research work, and maybe we can have a little conversation back and forth on that. Um, but um, I do want to get in. Um, as you're talking about sort of curriculum a little bit, um, I know that one of the things you teach that I thought was really unique is you currently teach an honors genetics class, which I, I can't recall ever talking to another teacher who teaches honors genetics at the high school level. So how did you become a the teacher of this course, you know, and, and what is it like to have a genetics focused course at the high school level? Well, the way that I became the teacher of genetics is I am, first of all, very lucky because it is an amazing <laughs> course that has so many very deep cross-curricular connections. Um, and so in that way, I think it's really unique because I'm able to um, position the content so that it's more familiar to students and maybe activate some prior knowledge for them. Uh, but I became the teacher of genetics because one of my mentors, who actually went uh, essentially into early retirement last year, Jess Taylor, actually, um, she was the one that authored the course originally about five years ago and she had been teaching it and I had worked closely with her at East um, in my role as a biology teacher and I also taught physics at East for a year and so <laughs> we so I've been a little bit all over the place in terms of science but it, it actually has helped my practice because I'm mm -hmm. able to see so many connections but um, Jess um, in her um, exit, her early retirement, I think that just because her and I had built a close relationship, uh, built on trust, we'd worked closely together, and I just expressed interest in it. Um, and so since there weren't any objections from the other teachers, uh, I was able to take on the course. And I'll tell you, it's fantastic. Um, one of the things that I really love doing is connecting genetics to other issues. Um, so for instance, right now, uh, one of the things that we, the kids are going to start working on is an ethics project in which the students um, collect their thoughts and do a little bit of research on whether they think uh, DNA databases should be used um, in the criminal justice system. And surprisingly enough, there's actually, I'm sure you are well aware, there's actually a lot of talk on both sides of that issue. And so um, it's great because we're able to I'm able to engage the students through the lens of ethics and other cross-curricular connections, but I, I think I'm able to really push them uh, a bit more when they're engaged and they're excited to do this more authentic project. I can push them in terms of getting them to look at, for instance, more complex STR data, um, data analysis and that kind mm. of thing. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I could do a whole side tangent because I read Michelle McNamara's book when it came out on the Golden State Killer. And then I, I literally, and then my wife read the book right after me. And then like, I think, I, I can't remember if I texted her or she texted me the day that they made the arrest in the Golden State Killer, uh, which all came out of those DNA databases. So like, this is something that, you know, less than a year ago, both of us read this book. And a few months later, we we sort of lived the the excitement 
and sort of the questions that came out of how did they discover this stuff? So um, that's really cool. But uh, before I get sidetracked, things that I find personally very exciting to talk about. Um, so who's in this class? Are this, is this like, is this a, like a junior, senior elective? How long is the class? Like what kind of, what kind of students do you have? So, sure. So the class does span the entire year. It's two semesters. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the students in the class are 10th graders, but there are some juniors and a few seniors. Um, the only prerequisite for the class is that the students have passed biology. And um, that is about it. So I get quite a range of abilities in the class. Some students, for instance, have taken chemistry. Some students are currently enrolled in chemistry. Some students aren't going to take chemistry at all. Um, we're in different levels of math. Um, you know, it really does run the gamut in terms of the uh, economic, social, racial, ethnic, lingual diversity. Mm. Um, and, and actually, I do, I genuinely believe it brings a depth and a richness to the course that I don't know that I would be able to achieve without that richness and diversity of student background. Mm. Um, so for, for instance, um, at the beginning in first semester, one of the things that we discussed was we did a very, a very deep dive into the experiments and the data that led to the discovery of the DNA double helix. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we discussed the historical dominant narratives surrounding those discoveries, as well as um, other sources that cast a different and new light on some of that narrative, particularly with Rosalind Franklin. Mm-hmm. And some of the discussions we were able to have in class um, relating these ideas to students' experiences were really, really deep and Honestly, I was very impressed with the students. At one point, I asked them, because uh, we've had some training with culturally responsive teaching and the Zaretta Hammond book. Um, mm-hmm. It's culturally responsive teaching in the brain. And one of the tactics is tell a story. So <laughs> I asked the kids, can you think of a time in your life where you didn't get credit for something that you did? And talk to about it with a partner, you know, the person sitting next to you for a second, just to kind of put them in the place of what Rosalind Franklin and maybe other people <laughs> who are in that similar situation might have felt like. And um, that just just rooting it, anchoring it and something personal for the students, I think really resonated with them. And we were able to have conversations um, with respect, of course, they were very respectful, but in regards to things like, you know, sexism and how that would make someone feel and whether we think people have access to science and really, really important ideas that I think would maybe not have come up as prevalently or as easily, if you will, if we didn't have such a wide array of different perspectives in the mm-hmm. class. So in that way, it's, it's, I, I am lucky to be able to teach this course with this stu- these students. Um, I really do think about how grateful I am every day. I, I'm curious if the the recent, um, I mean, I, I hate to say revelations because this is for somebody at my age, this is not, this is deja vu with James Watson saying non-scientific awful things. Has that, has, have yes. the recent comments by James Watson and, and the, the finally coming around by Cold Spring Harbor and others to denounce 
his non-scientific racist comments. Has that come up in your class since you had this this deep well of conversation earlier in the year? So that's a good question. It actually, so even before this most recent story came out, I believe there was an interview or there was some article that existed because mm-hmm. I, I actually wasn't going to present that to the students because only because I felt we already had enough to work with, <laughs> with the Rosalind Franklin perspective. But actually there were a few students that um, took it upon themselves. I'm assuming, and um, you know, in the best way possible that they were just simply intellectually curious, which is what I love. I would love to inspire them to, you know, do their own research, their own internet searches. And a few students across two different, because I teach four genetics court, like classes, Mm -hmm. two students in two different classes individually brought this to me. Um, they, they showed it to me on the computer. And so it did come up tangentially. Um, but now that you mention it, maybe it's something we should revisit, especially in light of this not more recent story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, it actually came up in a very informal way with my students. Cause I do in my AP class, I do a, um, I call it a historical journal club. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually pull the primary source articles that are brought up in their AP textbook. And then I, I jigsaw it. So um, some groups get uh, the Avery paper and mm-hmm. some groups get a paper from Shargoff and some get Hershey and Chase and some get a Beetle and Tatum and some get get um, a collection of Watson, Crick and Franklin articles. And so we do that as a, as a jigsaw where the groups get the original articles and obviously they're allowed to use, I give them some websites that give the, the background and their textbook describes the background and I have them like pull a key figure from it and sort of explain the point of the article and we create like a, an in-class timeline of oh. of the primary source articles and so um it's something that we've tweaked a few different ways and i've tried different things with it and um and we've done it in varying degrees of formality <laughs> over the last sure. few years um and again these are juniors and seniors and these are kids who have taken chemistry and this is not their first time through a journal article either so um i work with them on on deconstructing journal articles a lot so there's a lot in this task that they're doing um but uh, I had a student just the other day who was, they were getting ready to study for their mid-year and, and literally said, you know, just this, like, do you, you know, James Watson. And he was talking to one of his friends in class and he's like, oh yeah, Watson Crick. And then like, it was like, did you hear the story? Uh, <laughs> and they were talking yeah. there and I, I got involved in the conversation and I was like, yeah, unfortunately he has made similar comments in the past as your students had discovered that are not scientifically based. And, um, and I think, you know, better late than never people coming around to saying, oh, no, now this is not OK. Uh, but in reality, it wasn't OK when he, I guess, sort of apologized in 2007 for similar comments. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. And, you know, I teach a culturally diverse group. Um, I often joke that I teach, you know, wealthy students from all over the world um, <laughs> <Yes. that's> because <laughs> I, I live in wealthy suburbs outside of Boston. And we have, a, a, you know, but we do have a, a large population from uh, from China and India, some students who were born there and many students who are sons and daughters of, of Indian or Chinese immigrants along with other Asian cultures as well, though those are the, the predominant cultures that come into the classroom. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma for them because in a lot of ways they reflect both privilege from an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. but they're also very aware that there's a, there's a discrepancy. And so it, it creates this interesting dynamic for these students who in some ways have so many doors open to them, but also have these barriers that 
are you know beyond their community um well it sounds like that that the dichot right i don't know that you call it a dichotomy but the layering of that could mm-hmm. hopefully make for some pretty uh sophisticated students that have a lot of character um i think that that's that's wonderful that they're able to sort of see both sides of that yeah and i and i will say that you know personally like just from my own perspective um this is one of those things that um you know, uh, I often tell my students that there's things that you're not good at, but that doesn't mean that you don't work on them. In fact, those are the things you work on. Uh, I don't know that I'm particularly well adept at talking about privilege. I fully understand privilege as like an early 45 year old white man. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) but in terms of helping, you know, adolescents navigate the concept of privilege, it, it's a, it is, as you said, it's a very nuanced issue. And these kids are, from an economic standpoint, so much more privileged than I was at their age. Mm-hmm. Like, I've had conversations with students who are like, I'm like, like, what's the cheap college you got into? Because when I was getting into college, the pr- <laughs> paying for college was something I genuinely was concerned about. Because from an economic standpoint, right. that wasn't something I do. That is not something that, um, I don't want to say all, but many of the members of my community, that is not a concern. Like, the, the, the bill that they're going to get for college is not something that that pings on their their radar or their parents' radar. Um, I don't want to overstate it, and I don't want to say that's not a, the case for all of the students, you know, because that's just not true. But they're going to face different issues than I did because of the color of their skin or the pronunciation of their name and things like that. Things that I never had to navigate. So it's right. a it, it's an interesting it's an interesting issue that's going to come up. And uh, well, yeah, oh, sorry, go no, ahead. go ahead. I was- I was just going to say, I, I just hope that since they're in this unique position, they're able to use their power to uh, like really liberate people, you know, and not oppress them. That's something that I think about all the time, mm. you know, with my choices and cause I'm white mm-hmm. um, and a white woman teaching students of color. I think it's really important that I just like what you're saying, I'm reflective and I'm open. And if I make a mistake or say something wrong as a result of being ignorant, it's, you just have to own it. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to own your mistakes. And um, one of the things that I just was going to say about um, just quickly about the James Watson thing is I think that it's an important example because I think oftentimes students or just people in general tend to elevate scientists, in particular Nobel Prize winning scientists. (laughs) And so I think it's important that people realize that anyone can be wrong about anything. (laughs) And the nature of science, right, is dynamic. And so in that regard, he's terribly and horribly morally wrong, right? But even in just in terms of content, anyone can be wrong about anything. And it's important that we don't stop questioning people just because of their achievements, um, yeah. you know? So I yeah. think that, that in that way, that's a really powerful piece of it. Well, and I think your, your other point is there are people who are experts within their field that they spent their entire career building and understanding and a depth and a knowledge base in that career. And when you want an expert in that field, there are people you want to go to, but those are not the people that you want managing necessarily your finances. So like, (laughs) you know I mean? Like, like there are some brilliant people out there who I think are wonderful, but an understanding that expertise is very specialized. 
Like mm-hmm. just because you're an expert in one area. And I, I, I don't like to use James Watson necessarily in that, that realm, because I, I think that anybody who's read double helix and, and has the understanding of the story, there was certainly a degree of, of good fortune that came about him yeah. at the same time. He was able to, <laughs> along with Francis Crick, he was able to take advantage of being in the right place at the right time and to do like to take that information and to sort of win the race, whether or not they started like on the 90th yard of a hundred yard dash is neither here nor there, but he still was able to like put something together that nobody else had done at that point. And there seems to be some respect for that, like ability to achieve that goal, but that doesn't mean He's right. Like you should turn to him and have him like and handle your finances, as I said, or right, or, or right. put a deck on the back of my house. Like you can't confuse <laughs> expertise in one area with expertise in all areas. And I I think that's a that's the conversation that my students were talking to me about. They were like, mm-hmm. well, why you know? And I think that was the danger of the comments. Like this is somebody who has a really a Nobel Prize in genetics, so it sounds like this is something that he would be an expert on, but he's not actually using any genetic evidence in his right. his and he's you know he's just being racist i mean that's that's just yeah, all there is to it. yes yeah. absolutely uh, um and and i think you make an important point actually about you know when i think about privilege and i think about um navigating institutions and sort of the situational constraints that come with taking advantage of you know being at the right place at the right time that's something that you know, when I think about my teaching practice, those are, for example, some of the soft skills that I would like to impart on my students. Mm. Um, just the ability to, you know, if you're really interested in something, feeling like you can step out and you can send an email or I'll help you send the email so that you can uh, secure uh, certain opportunities or, <laughs> you know, whatever the case is. Um, that's, you know, one of the things that I, uh, when we get down and start talking about um, research opportunities, one of the things that I'm trying to work on with students is trying to get them to see that um, just because you don't have straight A's in everything doesn't mean that you can't be successful in a laboratory setting Mm -hmm. or taking data in this regard or at this hospital, right? Um, And so just helping them to see that in a lot of ways, uh, many times when someone's successful, like you're saying, it is just this opportunity that arises sort of just stroke of luck. And then you have to be the one to step up and take advantage (laughs) of it. So I'm hoping that through, you know, our work and eventually, um, hopefully students will be able to, you know, be more empowered to do that. And that's part of my job is to help them. All right. So I think this is a really good transition into the the work that we mentioned uh, with Bill Penwell and, and iHub um, that you started to work with, because you're looking at sort of, impl- you know, implementing these student centered, you know, teaching ideas that that help students sort of like, I guess, build a, a skill set so that the, they can hopefully take advantage of these opportunities and and figure out how to navigate those. So so tell me a little bit about iHub and how you got involved with this program in the last few years. 
So I was lucky enough to uh, begin working on the iHub program um, my first year at East. Actually, Jess Taylor, who I spoke about earlier, um, was someone that got me involved. And we had the opportunity to, um, she actually, along with a few other teachers from our district, uh, were some of the first teachers to actually work with Bill and his team of um, people that include computer scientists, cognitive scientists, um, a whole myriad of different skill sets to create uh, the iHub biology curriculum. And so I was lucky enough to come on board that second year. And so I had the opportunity to work with these experts, um, gain uh, so much of their knowledge and write uh, fully NGSS aligned le uh, lessons and units. Uh, they have coherent storylines, they have multiple assessment opportunities, they build in all of the science and engineering practices, as well as the cross-cutting concepts. Um, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting my NGSS acronym. Uh, and then, dis disciplinary uh, core ideas? Yes, they're DCIs, <laughs> thank you, my friend. Yes, exactly. So um, it's been fantastic, and since then I've had the opportunity to work um, at a, more of on a school-based level to revise many of those lessons. Um, one of the things that I think is really powerful about iHub is that it does an excellent job of incorporating authentic data sets and authentic mm. science practices. Uh, because I look at uh, introductory biology like I want students to have a sense of what real science is. And prior to this shift towards uh, NGSS uh, through the iHub curriculum, um, I I will be honest, I didn't teach biology at East before iHub, but I can tell you when I did it in Chicago, we were using BSCS, which is great, but I think that the shifts to NGSS have created actually more accessibility for many students um, because they're able to see that many of the skills that they already have, like for instance, being curious, wanting to do research, wanting to gather information, seeing patterns, communicating their ideas, all these things that maybe they're able to do in other classes or in other aspects of their life are actually transferable in science. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important because it changes students' conception of science um, as being something that's removed and detached from them, as something that people in white lab coats do um, in very sterile laboratories with fancy equipment. And I think it takes it from that place of essentially it being inaccessible to something that students can participate in actively every day. Um, even just the, the, the science practice of doing a survey about when we do our um, our evolution unit, we look at the evolution of bacteria, antibiotic resistant bacteria, and just the simplest task of just doing a survey and collecting data amongst your friends and family about, for instance, who washes their hands and who doesn't. And we talk about the flaws of self-reported data because mm -hmm. who's going to actually admit that they don't wash their hands? But just things of that nature, getting students to actually anchor the science practice 
and engage the students. And then from there, that's really when I think you can actually push students harder than you would typically because they're engaged, because it's something that's really an extension of their own life. Then I think you're able to get better and higher quality work out of them mm. because it's something that they're identifying with. So in that way, it really has shifted my practice. And one of the things that I'm doing, um, and you know, you've been a teacher for far longer than I, and I mean that in the best way possible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that over, it takes time to roll things out. So I'm in the process of NGSSifying, if you will, my genetics class mm. as well. So one of the things that, um, we did last semester when we um, to really do a deep dive into uh, gene expression. One of the things that we talked about and generated questions about was the Habsburgs and the interesting mm. facial deformities that they had. And um, I even had a few students who this was appropriate, appropriately challenging for them, they were able to um, take a look at and dive into a specifically a research paper that talked about uh, the downstream gene expression effects of such a high level of homozygosity, what you call this inbreeding, co there's an inbreeding coefficient. It was, it was fascinating because I was able to engage the students through this phenomenon, but then they went on their own and and when they presented the information, I was so proud of them because I was learning from them. And I mean, that's my goal as a teacher is to, you know, inspire someone to think something is something is so interesting and cool that they're going to just challenge themselves and then be able to communicate those ideas. So I, I, I really don't have enough. I wish we had more time. I could keep going on and on about how I think NGSS is great. It's it's just when I think about being student-centered and I think about being equity-centered, I think NGSS makes a difference because you're not bogging students down in, you know, the more traditional track, which would be, you know, like vocab lists. And those things are, of course, important and crucial to communicating in science, and we have to teach them. But I think that this different approach just ensures accessibility. Yeah, I, my, there's two things that really popped when you were, were talking. First of all, um, if you work with 15-year-old boys, they will tell you that they don't wash their hands. Um, but, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, but the larger piece is that you, I mean, sort of getting back to our, you know, um, accessibility and diversity component, for me, the this when I think of the the dilemma of the traditional science class, the problem I've always thought of is that my students view science as the noun and not as the verb, um, mm. and that has always been my const, you know, my problem. I've I've never really viewed it as an issue where it's not necessarily. I think of my students not seeing their ability to do the science or not being they're not being a scientist. And that's not to say that I don't think that there are students there, but I, I actually often think of them as saying, that's not something I'd want to do because they, <laughs> they view science as like, that's that boring sort of nerdy kind of like, it's just all about knowing a bunch of stuff as opposed to actively doing something. Um, sure. And so, it, I mean, that's a different perspective on that barrier. And, you know, I do I do a variety of different things. And again, you know, we talk a little bit about the 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 students that I have in front of me. And this is very much what you have to do in teaching. I don't think my students struggle seeing themselves 
in the field of science because many of their parents are engineers or doctors or, you know, connected to scientific fields and they, they can see them. And I also do uh, a lot of projects where I will send people out and we will have students from different cultures and, you know, male scientists and female scientists and people at different career paths. And particularly with my AP students, this is something we really work at showing them examples. Mm -hmm. But even those students, those AP students, getting them over that hump to understand that the important thing is not the vocab list, but the the practices, that is a barrier that that I struggle with in there. So it makes me think about whether or not I'm being open-minded enough for the different populations I work with to be aware of having them being able to see themselves as active scientists. That's not something I've ever thought of before. <laughs> so. Well, we have, I have a, so there are students, I will say that um, we do have quite a bit of diversity just in terms of like home life and background. Mm -hmm. And so the students who, there are students whose parents are professors or um, there are a few that have doctors as parents. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum where students might not have as much support at home. And so I think that one of the things that I try to do is to even for the students that um, maybe can see themselves as scientists because of the accessibility have via their parents or whatever the case is, I want to get them, like you're saying, this more authentic conception of what science is and that it's dynamic and that it's okay to be wrong. And like you're saying, actually taking data, like basing your claims in some level of empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really think that even if they don't want to be scientists in the future, these are skills that will help them, you know, in communicating in um, just even being a better thinker mm. about stuff, if you will. And, and, and I know I don't want to go too far into like the political realm, but sometimes um, one of the things that I try to do is get kids to think like, well, I know that maybe science isn't for you and that maybe you're not super interested in it, whatever the case is, but can't you see how if we don't know, for instance, how DNA is structured and or how CRISPR works, do you see how it would be easy to exploit people who don't know those things, mm. right? And so when we talk about like news stories that the kids are really interested in, the the uh, Chinese scientists who use CRISPR, we've been following that in class. And so one of the things that I keep trying to explain to them is, well, we don't know, we know some things about this story, right? There's some things that seem like I, I see conflicting things in the, the news, right? Or some of it's vague or nebulous. But, you know, when we're starting to get down the road of really complex DNA structures, or in this case, we're talking about STR alleles across 13 different loci in the CODIS <laughs> database, right? All these things, I'm trying to get them to see that Again, even if you're not going to be a scientist, you might know someone someday that's accused of a crime, or maybe you're accused of a crime, and not knowing this information just puts you at a disadvantage, right? And so you want to make sure that you have this, so that way you can navigate these institutions. You will not be exploited. And and so it, I try to make it come from a place of like, can't you see how this is a power issue almost, mm, yeah. you know? And, um, and then, uh, you know, I think of 
I think of uh, free air and I think of how um, students, we, we have to remove barriers for them so they can, you know, really achieve their full humanity. And, and I think that science, science education, the ability to be able to anchor what you learn, even the most abstract things into something real that can directly affect your life and or people around you in your community is how I oftentimes try <laughs> to motivate students into, you know, just keep pushing through. Well, this is really interesting. Just keep going, um, you know, in the tough, in the tough, more complex, abstract ideas in genetics. Yeah, I, I I have a we were I was building a storyline based off this Chinese scientist uh, scientist and CRISPR just like literally this morning I was having a conversation about that because um, we have we have just done uh, with my AP students we did uh, PTC tasting but uh, I oh, was yes. yeah we were able to amplify we were able to uh, collect their DNA and amplify for that receptor, that 221 base pair receptor. And then you do a restriction digest and you cut the DNA and then you run it mm -hmm. on the gels. But then we also sent them off for sequencing. So I have- Oh, very cool. Yeah, like this is a, this was a dream come true for me. Like this is something I wanted to do for years. And so like literally I have all of these, I have my students DNA sequences that were just dropped in my mailbox just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so we're, we're now, now we have to teach them how to look at these little like different color peaks. <laughs> which is like super yes. cool but it was like oh wow we have this oh wow we have this what are we <laughs> what are we doing um right. but we we are also looking at some like so it, just like you were saying like all right so now we have this information now we have to give them the power because in a lot of ways like their understanding of like a dna test is like 23 and me and they send yes. it off but what does that information mean and how did they get to that information and wh where do you bring like my students even my very smart students have zero skepticism about what comes back from one of those reports like yeah. they and they talk about it i'm like who's done this and i was like well what does it mean and they will tell you oh it means this and it means this and it means this and i was like well why does it mean that and they don't have skepticism there's a scientific right. authority that has come through with this information. And so they already live in this world where they're getting scientific information given to them. And they're sort of almost preconditioned to not have the authentic skepticism that they should have with it. Absolutely. And I tell my students all the time, it's okay to be critical. It's not the same as being negative. Mm -hmm. You can ask questions to uncover um, bias or what you would consider hidden or not overt information that it's all about how you ask the questions, right? Mm -hmm. If you're respectful, um, if you're really coming from a place of, listen, I'm just curious. Um, that's different than just this sort of like interrogation set of questions. And I, I completely agree with you. It, especially, you know, we did a, um, at this first semester, we actually, one of the first things that we did um, to really engage students in the course is we talked about the ethics of direct-to-consumer testing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because out of all my four sections last year of the, I had 134 students in genetics wow. or last semester. Yeah. Four classes. There was only one student that I can think of in my head that essentially just overtly said, I wouldn't want to do one of these tests because they can have your DNA. They can do whatever they want with it. <laughs> and he felt very strongly about it. And I respected his opinion. And, and I felt 
good that he felt comfortable challenging that in front of the rest of the students because it showed me that in particular this student maybe they have some background experience or something but or maybe it just reveals that they're just a naturally critical person and I wanted to model that that's okay right it's your choice you don't have to get your DNA sequenced and even further now that we're talking about STR profiles we're talking a lot about probability and we're talking a lot about well, just because the STR loci, the bands match, right? Doesn't we still need to know how frequent is this particular allele in the general population? Um, these things, like you're saying, the students just take, oh, well, it's a positive DNA match. We're done. They take that as, you know, we can just close the case. And um, I think it's important that they realize that it's okay to be critical, especially when we're dealing with something so complex that's really based in probability. Now, that's not to say that, you know, DNA testing has no applications and is useless. Of course it is. But I do think that it's important that they take it with a grain of salt mm -hmm. and realize that you can really see both sides of it and not to just blindly accept information, especially from a company. Like, let's be honest, 23andMe, I'm sure, is a fine company that has, you know, b benign and, you know, altruistic goals, but they're still a corporation, right? So we need to be critical about, well, do you think that they'll always be completely forthright and honest if you think that it might affect their profit? I don't know. It's just a question, right? I'm just a scientist asking questions. Yeah. Um, and so I want to inspire them in that way to be able to ask those questions. Yeah. And I, and as I said, I, for me, I have no problem with the, the concept of people sending out and getting their DNA, getting their 23andMe. And I think that there is a, there's sort of a fun, like there's definitely a fun part to that. Like, oh, what does this mean? And how does this relate? And that sort of thing. I just, and I, I want people to still have that fun, but I also want them to have questions. Like, I think that when you get data, the data should spark questions. Like the data mm -hmm. should not be the data should not be the end of the conversation. It should be the beginning of the conversation. It's it's if you get data back and it's a it's this like closed conversation and you're like, oh, this means this. And then the conversation ends. That's not good science. That's not how science works. Um, right. <laughs> so for me, when they're getting this thing, that, that it, the way that the students talk about the 23andMe or Ancestry.com or those type of things, the way they talk about them feels very like a closed conversation. Like I did this thing and this is what it means. And they're not part of the analysis and they're not part of the questioning and they're not part of that going further. And again, it can be just for fun and that's fine. But if they're going to hold it up as something that's scientific, it should have some components of science in it. <laughs> right. Like, you know, represent that sort of dynamic nature of yeah. science, which is that we have to interpret the data and given the context, given the constraints, things might seem or be different, right? I mean, we might see different patterns, whatever the case is. So yeah, I, I definitely think that those things are a lot of fun too. Um, one of the things that we talked a lot about was, should these tests be giving us information about our health, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so the, some of the students actually felt pretty strongly that, you know, people really need to go to a doctor, they need to go to a healthcare provider. And so um, 
like my goal as an educator is just really to present them the information and then for them to hopefully be able to make an informed choice about it, what, however that reflects their own perspective and their own opinion. Obviously, within reason, yeah. of course. Well, and, and even the companies acknowledge that because I think there are, I think I have to remember, I think there's two things that they will test for that that there's nothing to be done with them. I think one of them is maybe a Huntington's test. Uh, is it the other one, the BRCA gene? It, yeah, I'm not sure if it's BRCA, but it's something like that where there's a couple of diseases yeah. where, um, and I would have to go back into the, the test, but I think you have to like say, yes, I want them. Like you you don't get them by mm-hmm. default. Like they don't just like send them out in an email like, oh, you're, you're a, you, you have power <laughs> athlete genes and oh, you have hunting businesses. Like it, I think they- That would be alarming. Yeah, I think that they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they do actually modulate a little bit when it comes to health and, and disease and that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, so there's a lot well, of, there's a, there is, I think even the companies understand this nuance. And so um, I could understand from a, like I'm a selling something. I don't want massive skepticism about the thing I'm selling, uh, especially when I've been, <laughs> especially when I've been fighting with the FDA for the last 10 years to allow me to sell my product. <laughs> right. But, uh, Absolutely. but I do think that they are responsible in the sense that they understand there is a, some dynamic pieces with health. Uh, Absolutely. And I think they've done a pretty good job of like, relatively you know educating the public about some of these things yeah. so that's a positive yeah and it certainly pushes out there i mean there's huge benefits to this so i don't want to walk away from this thinking like oh i'm a big like negative dna test i think there's enormous value um to be had by this particularly as the price comes down and and accessibility comes out there um i just want my i want my i want critical thinkers <laughs> who are buying these tests exactly <laughs> exactly it's okay to ask questions yeah. about them cuz i agree i think the democratization mm-hmm. of you know the dna testing is so powerful um because then people you know, they can see their own data. There's no way that they would have been able to afford, you know, I couldn't have afforded that, you know, even just 10 years ago or whatever yeah. the case is. So I, I completely am in agreement with you. And I just want to push the kids to really ask questions and try to see something for more than just the surface level, you know? Yeah. All right. So let's, let's get into sort of simpler data collection. Um, so like, <laughs> sure. so I know that uh, you went to that society for science in the public um you know we said you went to that conference uh with paul uh and i know that's involved with uh the icef and it's also regeneron um so mm-hmm. how did attending that research conference impact your student research or your approach to research with your students well, I got a lot of really great ideas on how to incrementally roll some things out. Um, being at such a large high school, public high school, um, with so many different constraints, uh, I think that that's the challenge really is just that I can't do everything all at <laughs> once. And so <laughs> it's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day, yeah. right? So one of the things that I got out of it um, was ways to, like I said, incrementally roll things out. So since I went, I've actually incorporated, because uh, of course, Paul did a session. Um, so I've incorporated um, at least two or three either entire activities or chunks of activities to get the kids to more authentically analyze their data through um, statistical means. And so I would say nothing um, too mathy, because as I've said, we've got students in different spots, but just being able to um, 
you know, analyze a data set for outliers or take a look at the standard deviation. Um, the other thing that the conference did a great job of is providing teachers with resources of how to incrementally uh, set up community partnerships. Because mm. I think that that's really the bottleneck is um, I want to get students involved as, you know, after their freshman year. So students could range from 15 to 18. And so one of the things that I've done this year is I established a relationship with the Denver um, Museum of Nature and Science in their Genetics of Taste Lab. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's basically an opportunity for students to... Um, Essentially, they can volunteer at the museum in the exhibit itself. So uh, as you can imagine, it's uh, things like you were talking about before with the taste receptors, um, you know, people, it's an interactive exhibit. But really, the key piece is that once the students, if they are already 16 or once they turn 16, they have the opportunity to actually work in the wet lab with the PI. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, it's great. So they're going to be able to get some real hands-on experience with, obviously, equipment and protocols that we do not have access to at our public schools. So through that avenue in particular, um, and then I've also, I'm supporting another student and securing an internship at a hospital. Um, and I'll be honest, that student really took it upon herself to do that. And so um, I think that it's wonderful. And I look forward to establishing that relationship further because maybe it's another opportunity to place kids. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's really where I'm at is I'm trying to um, very thoughtfully and intentionally cultivate relationships so that over time there are more and more and more opportunities until we get to a point where, okay, we've reached critical mass. Now, instead of this just being biology or genetics focused, Maybe I, you know, I have plans to eventually, and I've, I spoke with one administrator, but obviously the plan would be to make it its own research mm -hmm. course modeled after Paul Strode. <laughs> it's our, yeah, cause he, you know, he's got a lot of things figured out and you know, why reinvent the wheel? You got to make the wheel your own, of mm -hmm. course, but um, use that as a model. And um, the course is already approved as far as I know in the district curriculum. So really the bottleneck, like I said, is just making sure that we have those community partnerships and really community partnerships that allow students that are not 18 because mm. uh, that's the biggest yeah. I think the biggest piece so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because it's as you can imagine a challenge I'm facing so I'd love to hear how you think about that and maybe some steps you took to establish some of those relationships. Yeah so we started chatting a little bit about this so I'm gonna I'm gonna go through um, let's let's go back and forth and we'll go we'll start at the the, the babies we'll start at the the my freshman sophomore class and sort of what we have because you had asked me a little bit, um, <laughs> you you did something that nobody had do does to me. You internet stalked me back. Um, you, uh, <laughs> you <laughs> I wanted to be prepared. Yeah, you, you watched you, you watched a YouTube video that I made for my students. Um, <laughs> so um, I did. Yes. Yeah. So you got, you watched a video that I uh, I made for. So uh, we have freshmen. Uh, freshmen have a few options in our school. Like some students take earth science, but if you're taking honors biology, you take that as a freshman. Or if you start at Earth Science, you can take Honors Biology as a sophomore. So within our Honors Biology class, we have a mix of freshmen and sophomores. It's somewhere between 60 and 70% freshmen, 
Um, and it varies year to year, but that's about it. So uh, our freshman sophomore co- cohort, uh, what we do is we've been building slowly this series of labs where, um, in, or in, and we do it through projects. So and they're they're team projects. So in quarter one, we have students go out to local ecosystems uh, where we live in the woods. We um, We've got all these conservation areas around where we are. So students on their own go to a habitat, a local habitat, um, either a, uh, you know, a, a pond, a stream, a bog, um, uh, different types of uh, grass, cultural grassland. Um, we have a handful of them and they go out and they make some observations. They take some pictures. They generate some questions. They look at um, some organisms in there and some human impacts on that ecosystem and also a historical perspective on that ecosystem because oh. well you know we're mm-hmm. we live we're just you know we have buildings around us that say like 16 something on them like you know like wow. uh, like That's it, awesome, in my though. town cool. in my town there's houses from the 17 and 1800s out there and um, and oh. you know so, so cool. like we live in a historical area. So, you know, there are places where there are now conservation land that 250 years ago, it was an orchard and there are, there are stone walls and there are abandoned apple trees or abandoned orchards, or there's a native American fish weir like in, in that area. And some of these are well-documented um, in text. And some of them, there's actually things you can see when you go to these areas to say that these were areas where you know, Native Americans used to collect fish or uh, there used to be settlers who set apple trees up or that sort of thing. So we start by this sort of observation, awareness, like get out into nature. That's quarter one. And then the video mm-hmm. that you saw was quarter two. And uh, <laughs> I had mentioned to you before, I'll tell you how I screwed this up or how we screwed this up because uh, <laughs> so like, so we had had students um, building to do these sort of independent research projects. And what we had started is basically we had asked them quarter two in the past to build a model of the ecosystem that they had been working on. So for example, if they had gone out to a red maple swamp, we would have them build a Winogradsky column and then like watch how that changes over the quarter. Or we would have them build like a pond tank. Or if they did an O'Conifer forest, they would do like a rotting log in a box and they would document how that changed over Mm. a month. And so we started with that. But the problem was, is that there wasn't great equity between them. Like some of them just looked like a bunch of leaves in a box and some of them, (laughs) and some of them like changed dramatically and looked really cool. So, and the kids had varying degrees of skills of them and we pulled a whole bunch of resources and we had at one point, I think we had like eight or nine model systems and it was like, it was giant kind of thing. And so then (laughs) last year we decided that we're going to do is we're just going to, Oh, we were going to sort of, we moved the model into quarter one and so then along with going to the ecosystem they would build a model of that ecosystem and it actually kind of tied together very nicely and it 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 made that project a little bit more robust but then for quarter two we said okay so based off of the questions you generated you guys will do an independent research like lab where you're going to collect data and do all of this stuff and it was like chaos because i don't know if you're familiar but like 15 year olds can't do anything and they start <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't know how to they don't they don't know that like plants need water to grow like they don't know they don't know anything so we basically opened this giant inquiry box like wide wide open 
And like, I like one of my colleagues who teaches honors bio, like, I gotta give her credit. Like, she didn't quit. Like, I don't, <laughs> like the fact that she didn't like we didn't drive her out of the school because it was her first year in our school. Like, the fact that we didn't drive her out of the school in that first year when we opened that box was like shocking um because it was like three veteran honors teachers and and her and um she was like there every day after school for like an hour and a half helping all these groups and projects and and she did an amazing job but it was like we opened the inquiry box way too far and then we had Mm. them get some feedback from their peers and then reiterate and that was actually kind of nice so then core three they sort of did some follow-up they redesigned they narrowed it and then we talked about the idea of collecting more data to be able to make a claim so like in the first quarter they didn't even know like they didn't do enough trials so they would like do one trial of something and they're like yeah when we added salt to these plants they died which was like shocking and we added too much fertilizer right. to plants, they died <laughs> and so like that was Aww. sort of the, the experiments we got but like well it's like well so then you ask the question well how much fertilizer and they had no idea how to measure it and they had no idea how much like they don't know what molarity is they don't know what concentration is they don't because oh, no, they, yeah. they're like it's not their fault like yeah. yeah so they were super green and so we opened the inquiry box as i said way too far and so then like it was a good learning experience and we didn't penalize them for their repeated failures to do that. And in fact, we sort of built into the rubric, the idea of trial and error and making mistakes and that sort of stuff. But at the end, like they weren't really getting to what you want in inquiry, which was them to be able to follow their experiments. And I'm okay with students struggling and failing a little bit and then reiterating, but the ability to fail was way too easy and the ability to succeed was way too hard. So so what you saw this year is this video where what we decided is we pared it down and we did six. And so um, I took two of the model systems and one of my other colleagues took two and another colleague made, made took two. And what we did is we basically showed them how to set up a basic experiment. We gave them some options and we talked to them about getting a sufficient like number of trials, like six trials minimum, so they could get some averages. And then we talked mm-hmm. to them about how they would like what they would change, some parameters of the types of things that they would change. For the different projects, like some of the projects I said, like I didn't tell them anything because it was kind of easy. Like, for example, the the algae and fertilizer uh, to model some eutrophication. I didn't uh-huh. really, I gave them a couple of options for controls they could do. And I said, you could do this and I could do this, but I didn't tell them how much algae to put in. And I didn't tell them how much fertilizer to put in, but I also gave them like two months. So I said, so when you come back and collect the data, if everything's dying, do 10% of that. And I kind of built it in, but I gave them some initial parameters where I told them like, start in this realm. And I also gave them materials and methods that should be able to quickly be able to get there. So I gave them, I cut uh-huh. down a lot of the the startup costs that we were seeing last year to to get to the point of evaluating whether or not this was going to work or not. And then we also, because we narrowed it down, it also, this was the real big problem we had. If somebody was struggling, I might've had four different groups who are trying to do a eutrophication study, but because we didn't give them common materials and methods, they would all be trying to do totally different things. They'd have different starting amounts, different varying amounts, different materials, different methods, different sources, different like fertilizers, different, everything was different. But because I sort of initially gave them the original parameters, it was much easier for me to troubleshoot. So for example, this year I had, for whatever reason, some of our, um, we were using the vernier colorimeters. Some of our, like all of a Mm -hmm. sudden in the middle, a couple of the groups were struggling with a colorimeter. I think 
literally one of our colorimeters wasn't working very well. And so like, it, I don't know if it, somebody left it on permanently or like a bulb burned out or something, but all of a sudden, like one of the colorimeters was just not generating data. And so I went out and I basically like went in the back room and I whipped up some McFarland standards, like just mm-hmm. off the top, like I was like, there's a way of doing this based off turbidity. Let me just do this. And I went and did that. But because I have the background and expertise, it took me like five minutes to put together McFarland standards. I looked up what the recipe was. I whipped them out and I gave them that I'm like, yeah, use this, compare them here, put them up against a piece of paper. This will give you there. And there, and I said, you can generate data. So I was able to then help all of the groups who got that same problem. I managed to help four groups by one solution because, wow, because okay. like we have nine classes but all nine classes have a group that's doing that. So because by, by me being the point person for two of these models, I was working with 18 different groups, some of which were my students, some of which were other students. And we were able to, oh. we were able to do that. And so, um, and students were able to email me. And that's one of the reasons I made the videos was sort of that commonality between there. And I talked, talked through them. And so like what we did is we sort of lowered the threshold to generating data in that quarter. So now as we move in and we talk about evolution and we do some Beak of the Finch stuff, uh, which is HHMI, mm-hmm. which I think Paul was also part of it, that actually teaches introductory to standard deviation, standard error. Now what we can do is when we move into our evolution unit where we look at that Beak data and we look at standard deviation and standard error, now as they're moving into quarter three and they're going to reiterate and use their own follow-up questions that they generated from this data, we're going to show them data analysis. So now they actually have their own individual or their own group data sets so that they should be able to have, after I teach them how to do standard deviation, they should be able to take their data from quarter two and create error bars from their own data. That's wonderful. And now they'll use the questions they generated from their own investigation along with their new teams. And that's the other thing we do. We team them up into groups of threes or fours. And so then they'll come together and they'll do this. And so we've we've made things a little bit more manageable so now like in quarter 3 you will have you know within a classroom there were six different groups that were generating data and then we shuffled them around again in quarter three. So now you'll have one person that worked on like a eutrophication algae growth group and another, which will use a, like a grass salt toxicity test and another group that used photosynthesis with Elodia and temperature mm-hmm. and like, and they'll all be now in the same group and they can say, all right, well, what oh. questions did your group generate? What group questions did your group generate? What questions did your group generate? Which of these do we think is the most interesting moving forward? And which model system, okay, now how do we modify that? But they're going to bring a wealth of sort of research experiences together. And our hope, and we don't know if this is going to happen, um, but our hope is that the cross-pollination of that experience will lead them to coming up with their own independent new question that sort of goes, you know, takes that next step. Um, So these are very baby steps, if you will. Well, I've just been taking a lot of notes on what you're saying because those are fantastic ideas. And I like the way that it seems like your group has been really intentional about really scaffolding the process to get the students to – because they have to do it themselves because just telling them about science, like you were saying, is not the same as Mm -hmm. doing it. And so I think that – 
your models, like the model systems that you have the kids create is fantastic. And so now I'm thinking in my own brain, how can I incorporate something like this into either our biology or genetics class? Because I really like, and I like the way, um, even just coming down to the details of like how your team sort of divvied up the work and sort of specialized in to each, I think is really important because then, like you're saying, it makes the process more efficient. And and I think that just like in terms of the practicality, the main reason why um, what I hear just in general, not necessarily from teachers that I work with now, but just like throughout the, the six years has just been, oh, I don't have time <laughs> for that, you know? So I think that in that way, when you kind of divide and conquer, then you're really able to buckle down and just get it done, yeah. you know, and specialize and be able to troubleshoot. So I, I really appreciate you sharing those ideas. And I want to look more into the grass salt toxicity. That sounds really yeah, interesting. Find, your, find yourself yeah. an environmental science teacher because they, uh, they, they do the, – the, <laughs> I think that's the, we stole that right from an old environmental science lab. Um, well, that's easy. I can yeah. do that. Yeah, I can find an, an Enviro, an ape, an ape's teacher, yeah. and pick their brain. That's yeah. wonderful. Thank yeah. you. So, for and that. Uh, the last thing I would say is, um, if you don't look at the initial lab that you asked them to do and say, "Well, that's just really easy," um, then it's then it's too hard. Like you really need to be like, if oh, you okay. don't look at it and say, "This is super simple," like. They, that they has to start there when the kids are going to do their independent piece. The initial setup has to be able to generate data in a really simple way. And there'll be time for them to build that next step up. Um, I didn't appreciate that the first time we went through and opened the box because it is amazing how they screwed stuff up. Um, <laughs> without, <laughs> they find yeah, a way. <laughs> right. so, um, and again, we still have learning to do on this, but um, it's an iterative process to, to, and getting the feedback from the students, what did they need? And we made things too complex. And so we simplified it and then we simplified it. And I still think there's some things we need to simplify again, but it's, you know, you can buy a pound of radish seeds on Amazon for like six bucks and I can make, I can wow. make like 10 labs out of that, you know, with like, that's all you're like the MacGyver. Yeah. Of yeah. Super, super, super simple. You can do a lot of different cool things with that. It doesn't have to spend a lot of money. Those labs that we talked about, I just said, you know, I used algae I collected from a fish tank. I grew it up under a lamp. Um, I used all this. I used fertilizer from a, you know, from a store. Like it was a $2 bottle of fertilizer. It was like nothing. Like I didn't spend any money on this project. It right. was, it was cheap. So. Well, that makes it sound even yeah. <laughs> better because as you can imagine, we're all under those yeah. constraints. So that's really cool. And we're always looking for ways to, you know, add more authentic labs, mm -hmm. you know, more authenticity to the course. So that's wonderful. Thank all you. right. So, um, boy, we are way deep into this. So in <laughs> um, <laughs> like the best way so possible, the, right? I'm The good news is you already asked questions for me, so I don't have to do that. So uh, I'm going to ask real quick. I don't know how you have any time. You don't have any time. But when you're not teaching, do you have any hobbies, things you like to do? I love to bake. Uh. Um, it's dangerous. <laughs> and my husband hates it because he's like, 
stop baking me cookies, but I can't help it. I love baking. Uh, we take walks, you know, cause you just got to take a break <laughs> from work, a walk the dog. I do really, this makes me a nerd. Um, I really love, love reading educational policy papers. <laughs> um, I know that's sick, right? But, um, also I really enjoy, um, reading more about, um, equity in science education. And I know that sounds lame, but I really do enjoy it. Um, because I feel feel like I'm always thinking and talking about science. So it's actually kind of nice to be able to think about things through a different lens. But beyond that, um, I love gardening during the mm -hmm. summer. We don't actually have a plot because we live in a condo, but we have a balcony. So in the summer, it is like filled with flowers. I just love, and I have to be honest, my husband is way better <laughs> at it than I do. I, and I am, I'm just like moral support and company. I can like, you know, I like to do things once in a while, but it's usually just him telling me what to do because I may or may not have killed some plants before, but, um, you know, just really just not working, <laughs> hanging out with my family, you know, being in my home and just unwinding, reading a book, doing as little as possible. You know what I, I do. mean? Uh, we all need that. I'm, I'm terrible at it, but um, yeah, if, if you, <laughs> yeah, if, if you, uh, if you haven't ever listened to two pint PLC, um with uh mm -hmm. with uh those two guys uh you definitely should you should definitely uh, listen to them uh it is a education policy two guys drinking a beer and talking about education literature oh i, I love it's, it it's totally two pint plc i love the plc yeah, reference so, uh, <laughs> michael great. ralph and lawrence woodruff do a really nice job with that 45 minutes they release one a month there, I think they might be on their third season now, but or they did like a they oh, cool. or they did like a really out. super long season one in there. But yeah, there's uh, there's you know more than a dozen episodes easily, and I might have been on for five minutes of one of those at some point. But uh, yeah, they they do a really nice job talking about um, the actual uh, education policy um, on a regular basis. So uh, I think you might enjoy that one. Yeah, there's just something really fascinating about like trying to analyze social science through the lens of like science. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like trying to isolate the variables and the parameters and it's never simple. It's never easy, but it's interesting, you know, seeing it through that lens. So yeah, and it just allows me to put on a different hat, if you will. So. <laughs> All right. So we're now to pick the episode and I'm going to ask you to, to focus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and pick like like two. Okay, <laughs> or maybe two. Three. All right. So some so resources that I love. So stop me if you've seen or heard them before, but Data Nuggets is one that oh. I use frequently. I, I actually used it last week in biology class. It's a great way to get authentic science data um, across almost any bio or environmental topic. Um and it's also just great to get the kids to practice those science practices. Um, the other thing, um, because I'm a genetics teacher, um, there's great, I mean, everyone I think knows about Learn Genetics Utah, hopefully, um, but PG Ed, um, it's your personal genome education through Harvard, as well as yourgenome.org. These are just wonderful, amazing resources. Um, oftentimes I get ideas for um, ethics-based lessons and even lessons that take a more historical perspective um, from those websites uh, because they just are so comprehensive and they have so many great materials. All right. Yeah, those are, I mean, I, as you were talking about authentic data earlier, I actually was thinking data nuggets um, and wondering if, you know, those types of things could fit in. Um, so yeah, that sounds great. And uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever brought um, 
uh, PG Ed up, uh, but I, I'm aware of their stuff uh, and I've seen their workshops. So that's those are great resources. Absolutely. They, if you're ever in a pinch and you need to teach a genetics lesson, I, I always amend everything. It's just I'm a little, I guess, anal retentive in that way. I have to change it, uh, make it my own. But they have great PowerPoints. They have great handouts for corners activities. A lot mm-hmm. of things are, um, you know, almost right there, I, I would say. So they've done a lot of really thoughtful work. Nice. All right. So my episode uh, a couple of months ago, I think it was one month ago now, um, I had Tanea on um, from Arizona and we were, I actually was messaging with her just this past week and she, she teased her summer workshop um, on my episode back there. And uh, I, at least 1600 people listen to that. As shocking as that sounds that people wow, listen to me talk. Uh, <laughs> uh, me, me want to, you know, I, I think it's Tanea was worth listening to for that, but um, she, uh, she sent me the link. So I'm going to put in my show notes, the link to her summer workshop. It's biology modeling at the Arizona school for the arts. It's a two week workshop on modeling and biology. It's going to be July 8th through the 19th in Arizona. So if you are in the Arizona area or, you know, you're one of those people who travels for PD during the summer, um, I've been known to make some traveling uh, during the summer. Maybe you got family, you know, down in the Southwest and you want to go to a workshop down there. Um, I'm going to put the link in show notes. Um, I... I wish I was a little closer, um, <laughs> and I, I think I have a conflict one of those two weeks with an existing PD that I'm already I'm already set up for, which might say something about me that it's January <laughs> and I've already got a week booked. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so I I think it's great, and um, yeah, I, I think it'll be a fantastic workshop. Um, I think modeling is something we're all working on, and um, I think it, I can't think of a better two weeks to spend than. Um, learning from from the ladies down in Arizona about uh, about biology modeling. Yeah, it sounds great, and I think it's really cool that it seems like it's taking place at the School for the Arts. What a better yeah. place to be, you know, doing some scientific modeling like cross curricular connection there could be pretty strong. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a really neat opportunity. All right, well, Sam, uh, thanks for joining me. This was, uh, I think, the lesson I've learned is Colorado teachers. We can talk for a long time when I get a Colorado <laughs> one on because uh, it was great. Uh, but this was a great conversation. I think uh, so much to unpack and think about. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I love connecting with another teacher, and I really appreciate you sharing your ideas with me. Um, I'm going to really work to, um, like you said, pick the brain of an apes teacher to see what kind of cheap labs we can come up with, <laughs> in addition to the ones you've already given me here. So thank you for that. It was great. Yeah. I'll post a, I'll post a couple of things that, that we've been using this year, at least some of the videos and maybe some of the resources I've given kids uh, that tie into those simple ideas. So let me give you my show credits. Uh, you can subscribe uh, to Life of the School on any podcast player you have. Um, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all of them. Um, you can find them anywhere. So so please subscribe. Um, uh, I think I'm supposed to tell people to rate and review it. But um, as I said, I don't. I don't make any money on this, so I guess it doesn't really matter, but feel free to rate and review, but uh, subscribers are great. Um, I do like it when I get to see people uh, listening to the show. It does, uh, I do get a little personal satisfaction from that and uh, mostly to see the voices of the, the te- great teachers I talk to um, being heard by others. Uh, you can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. I post show notes there. Um, Patreons do get a little bit of an early release. Um, I try to get it out at least a few days earlier and I share that with them. Um, music on uh, this and every episode is provided
provided by X magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, show notes are also available at lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. I tweet out episodes on both of those platforms. Um, so if you follow me there, you'll see there. You also get an insight into my classroom a little bit. Uh, Sam is not on Twitter, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> All right. So thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to everybody soon. Bye.